you also write about girls understanding that they have the right to exist in a female body. Um, so much of conservative Christian teaching is around modesty and when women's role and not leading men into sexual lust or giving into their sexual impulses. First, uh, why is that teaching complete BS? And, and second, <laughs> how do we teach an alternative to, uh, to this male-dominant idea? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. This is worth putting off the podcast interview for 30 more seconds to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Sheila Ray Gregor. She is a sought-after speaker and writer about sex, authoring numerous books, including The Great Sex Rescue. She's also the host of the Bear Marriage podcast. Sheila, thank you for rejoining the conversation. Yeah, it's great to be here again. Well, you know, it's good news that we or I didn't offend you the first time that you were willing to to come back <laughs> on because not everybody is willing to do that, you know? No, it's great to be with your audience. <laughs> and and you're, you're Canadian, so you're just naturally a polite person. And so even if we did offend you, you would probably come back on anyway, so. <laughs> oh, absolutely, eh? I'd never tell you anything else, eh? <laughs> so we're going to get to the book here in just a second, but... Yeah, we had you on a year ago. Uh, so you, you've been busy. Uh, you've got yet another book out and you're continuing to churn out uh, podcast episodes and other resources. Where, where is the abundance of energy coming from? Oh, gosh, I don't know if it's anger or if it's I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But we started um, in 2021 with the release of our book, The Great Sex Rescue. 
um, where we were asking the question, are there evangelical teachings that are hurting women's marital and sexual satisfaction? Because we were just getting really alarmed at what was being taught in the bestsellers. And so ever since then, I've just been on a mission to change the evangelical conversation about sex and marriage so that it it's focused more on intimacy and what Jesus wants. Um, and because of that, yes, we've been churning out content. This is our fourth book in two years, which is crazy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're just, we're excited to see how the conversation is changing. And that does give me hope. You know, it's, um, it's become very uh, sexy in um, a post-evangelical world for people to um, pick apart aspects of that movement. And, and in many regards, um, you know, for those of us that came out of it, it's not um, intended to be um, through malcontent. It's intended to be, um, how can we become better and more faithful to to Christ? And, and I'm sure as a person who has been really laying out the ramifications of not just evangelicalism, but some of the more conservative perspectives into gender and sexuality, that you have probably caught the brunt of some pretty uh, nasty uh, reviews and things of that nature. How, how do you process those things as, as they're coming your way and as you're still trying to produce resources to speak into this movement? I think I've just realized how much Jesus was on the margins and how the story of scripture so much is of God speaking into a religious environment where the authorities that be were abusing their positions, were oppressing people and had completely missed the story. And when you look at where God's working, it, it almost always is on the margins. And so my mission, as I see it, is not to change the minds of the powers that be necessarily. Um, I think what we're really trying to do is just give people in the pews, give pastors of individual churches, give counselors other ways of seeing this and the words to to put to the things that they know are wrong, but they just don't know how to express it. And so I, I just console myself thinking that I don't need to change the minds of the big, <laughs> the big fish in the pond. Um, the little fish matter to Jesus, and that's where I'm focusing my energies. So there's so much about this new book that, that I want to get to. So let's let's jump right to it. You have a new book, She Deserves Better. This book is a resource for raising girls to resist the toxic teachings on sex, self, and speaking up. You wrote, it's all too easy as a parent to become that reckless lifeguard and ignore the currents that could drag your daughter out to sea. Um, what about your work and research led you to write a book for parents about daughters? When we finished The Great Sex Rescue, um, over and over again, what we heard from women especially was they felt seen, they felt validated, they felt heard. Um, it was really healing, which is all great. But then they said, but now I have absolutely no idea what to say to my kids because I grew up with all the toxic messages. I don't want to give my kids those toxic messages. I want to spare them the harm that I went through, but I also don't want the pendulum to swing to the other direction. And so I'm completely lost. So our, our mission at Bear Marriage is we don't just give people our opinions, we look at data. So for Great Sex Rescue, we surveyed 20,000 women. For She Deserves Better, we surveyed another 7,000. 
to see how experiences in church and things that they were taught as teens in church affect them long term. So let's figure out which messages are harmful. Let's let's actually look at the data because Jesus said a good tree can't bear bad fruit and a bad tree can't bear good fruit. So you can recognize things by their fruit. So we're trying to measure the fruit of a lot of the messages, um, a lot of the experiences that our teenagers have so that we can point to what is better. Um, and, and that's, that, that's really what it came out of was we just had so many women saying, I don't know what to do now. You've obviously in some of your other writing addressed a good bit of this. Um, you know, I, I was raised in an evangelical Baptist tradition that often railed against the evils of the world and how culture is misleading us down a road on sexuality, body image, and more when all along that same church was dispersing chemical warfare of its own. It was gender-exclusive, male-dominant views of, of gender and sexuality. So so for churches that are kind of thinking through these issues, uh, before we tackle cultural influence, shouldn't we first talk about how the church influences these matters? Exactly. And that's, that's really what we're trying to say, is we focus so much on let's protect our kids from out there. But we haven't looked at what are our kids experiencing in here, because we need to clean up the in here before we really focus on the out there. And for that, we have good news and we have bad news. Um, the good news is that our research showed both both in the Great Sex Rescue and She Deserves Better, people who attend church, people who believe in Jesus, um, people who have good church community, they do better. Like church is not a bad thing. Church is a very good thing. And in fact, this is such an established research fact that in psychology, they don't even measure it anymore. It's just, it's just a truth. So they might look at subsets of religiosity, but everyone knows religiosity is good for people. And that's what we found as well. So that's good news. Church is good. But, and this is a big, big but, as soon as girls start internalizing some toxic messages that we measured, all of the benefits of church attendance disappear. And for many of our teens, they would have been better off not going to church at all. If you look at their long-term relational health and long-term self-esteem, than going to church and hearing toxic stuff. And so we really do need to clean up our act. You've done um, so much work around course correcting and, and bandaging the after effects of, of poor theology on gender and sexuality. In, in many regards, this book um, is a, a preventative vaccine to all that mess. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I think I think it's a vaccine um, against the negative stuff for our teens. I think it's also really healing if women read it. Um, I like to say in our in our launch team, so many women are saying, I'm, I'm reading this for 15 year old me who's still inside there and is still hurting. So, you know, it's very healing, I think, for adults, especially those who grew up in purity culture, more of the millennial generation um, to read and feel healing. Um, and I think it's also really helpful for youth pastors and pastors just to know we don't want our kids experiencing this stuff that we did, that the millennials did. We want better. Our kids deserve better. So, you know, let's figure out how we can help them, what we can help them know now so that they don't start believing this toxic stuff later. You know, as, as you were alluding to earlier, it's not all bad for the church. There's some pretty glaring findings from your research. So let's talk about that, some of these. 81% um, of teenage girls are more likely to have an above average self-esteem when they're attending church more than once per week. Um, 
I guess first question is for you know for any of these statistics, how do you measure this this kind of thing? Um, and second, how does the church play a role in self-esteem improvement? Yeah, so we measured it using a previously validated um, set of survey questions that has been used, I think, since the 1950s. It's kind of the standard for measuring self-esteem, so it's a 30-point scale. <laughs> um, and and we used it so that our, our findings could also be generalized to other studies that used the same um, question set. So that was, that was a kind of a neat thing that we did. Uh, and self-esteem measures just a whole lot of things, uh, how you how you see yourself, your confidence, um, how you see yourself in in comparison to others. Uh, there's there's a number of questions on that on that question set. Um, I think self-esteem gets really bad rap in Christianity because we equate it with pride or with self-centeredness. And it really isn't that. You know, Jesus said to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And it is important that we love ourselves. Um, wh well, yes, we are to empty ourselves and to let Christ grow in us and to let him live through us. You know, I am crucified with Christ and yet I no longer live, but Christ lives in me as we read in Galatians. But that doesn't mean that we think that we are worms or that we think that we have no value. We have immense value. We're made in the image of God. And it's very important that our kids understand that because if they don't, it will be very difficult for them to draw boundaries. It will be difficult for them to protect themselves um, or even or even to understand that they deserve to have good relationships. <laughs> you know, they don't need to tolerate uh, toxic stuff. And, and so it, it is important for us to get this right and not to always give the message that you need to be self-deprecating because often that is what people hear in church. When uh, high schoolers attend church um, more than once per week, 91% are more likely to have an above average marital satisfaction. Um, what do you think's going on here behind that statistic? Oh, there's all kinds of things. Um, first of all, we know that like I said, religiosity, faith, all leads to um, better marriage satisfaction later on. This this has been shown multiple times. I think believing in Jesus gives you purpose. You know, the Holy Spirit is in your life. That's going to do something for you. You're When you go to church, you're also part of a community, and that community has an interest in your marriage doing well. You're going to have more of a friend group, which often helps your marriage. There's just so many benefits from meeting as a body. Um, and that, that does, that does really benefit us long-term. And that's one of the reasons why I get concerned about the deconstruction movement, because while I'm very much a part of that and, and I am, I am deconstructing a lot of evangelical teachings around, uh, gender, I'm not saying that we should leave the church. I'm simply saying we need to leave toxic spaces. Um, and we need to start investing in ones that aren't destructive because church and the body of Christ is worth belonging to. Okay. So um, I, I do want to talk about um, one more stat. When attending church more than once per week, 54% of women who attended church in high school reported to having an above average sexual satisfaction. There, there's a lot of questions going here. And, and a lot of it goes back to some of your previous writing first how does how does this measure up to people who have not attended church and what's the correlation between church attendance and, and sexual satisfaction 
Uh, okay. So this is, this is a tough one. We'd have to go back to our survey for great sex rescue for this one. Cause we measured it more in that one. Um, but yes, people who do attend church tend to have better sex, but, and, um, some of this is how you measure sexual satisfaction, whether you measure objective measures or whether you measure subjective measures, by which I mean, are you measuring rates of sexual pain or orgasm rates, which are objective measures? You know, you either have pain or you don't, you either orgasm or you don't. Or are you asking people, um, are you really happy with your sex life? And here's an interesting stat for you. The more women believe in gender hierarchy, so the more women believe that the husband is over the wife, the husband makes the decisions and the, and the wife follows, the more likely it is that their subjective and objective don't match up. So in other words, they will have, um, they won't be orgasming at all, but they also won't think that's a big deal. And they'll still say their sex life is great. Whereas when you believe in equality, you actually think, hey, sex should be for me too. <laughs> and your objective and your subjective match up a little bit better. So while Christians as a whole do do better, when you actually break it down, there are elements in which we um, don't do as well depending on our underlying beliefs. And it's also true that evangelical women suffer from sexual pain at about two and a half times the rate of the general population. So our rates of vaginismus are around 22.6%, we found. Um, and in She Deserves Better, we identified some big reasons for that too. Yeah, I guess I probably should have warned our audience if they hadn't listened to the original episode. We're probably going to talk about some things. That... <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I say these things, but I don't realize how weird they are. No, no, yeah. no. That, that's on me. I, I should have totally warned them. And probably the title of this episode will, will probably let people know. But I just imagine somebody just, you know, kind of having, you know, a, a gentle listen to this podcast and just spit their coffee out as soon as you start going there. But I'd like to go a little deeper there. How, how does this stat measure up? to some of the other research around, and you alluded to it there a bit, uh, around sexual dissatisfaction due to the church's failure to properly do spiritual formation around sex and sexuality? Um, okay, so here here's my issue. One of the problems with measuring um, Christians against those who don't attend church, um, or, or church attending people against those who don't attend church, I should say, is, is that really the correct measure? So I'm going to push back a little bit because, um, yes, we do better, but what I would rather look at is if we measure Christians or those who profess Christ, who believe certain things versus those who don't, we'll see that certain people do a lot better than others. And I don't think that our aim should simply be that we're better than the atheists. Um, I think our aim should be that we really have a lot of intimacy because the, the simple truth is a lot of the people who are outside the church don't have great sex lives because yeah, they don't understand intimacy. There's a lot of porn use. Um, there's all kinds of other issues going on. So it, to me, I think what matters is, are we teaching people how to experience true intimacy and what is the difference when we do versus when we don't? And that's really what, what our surveys focus on. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. 
Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Yeah, I guess uh, a little less uh, um, what I was alluding to there is the focus on non-believers. I was actually thinking through if what's the correlation uh, between sexual satisfaction and the church's failure to do um, adequate spiritual formation um, when it comes to talking about sex and sexuality. I guess that kind of connects back to some of your other writing, just kind of seeing how we shape this theological worldview around sexuality, if there is a correlation between that and sexual satisfaction. I mean, what there is, what we can tell you is that there's correlations around obligation. There's a lot of correlations around how we see men. So for instance, um, what we found in She Deserves Better is if if a girl believes that uh, boys can't help but lust if a girl is dressed like she's trying to entice it, if she believes boys have a visual nature that girls will never understand, her rates of sexual pain as an adult uh, increase 52%. Her chance of marrying an abuser goes up 68%. Um, and we see similar things in our survey of adult women that we did for Great Sex Rescue. Uh, or sorry, we, we surveyed adults in both cases, but we were specifically, and she deserves better asking about their experiences as teens. But but as we looked at their experiences as adults in Great Sex Rescue, the more you believe messages like all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle, um, that men are created in such a way that they can't help but objectify women. So when we equate male sexuality with the objectification of women, which has largely been done in evangelical spaces, women's marital satisfaction and sexual satisfaction go way down. Rates of sexual pain increase and um, her libido goes down. And so we need to start talking about these things in very different ways. Um, it simply is not true that that men are made to sin. And yet that is what books like Every Man's Battle have taught us, that men don't naturally have that Christian view of sex. Uh, that men sin naturally simply because they're male. Um, not true. Men have the Holy Spirit just as much as women. And when we tell women that men can't help but objectify you, we create a world which can never be safe for women. Let's go back to what you're you're building um, in this book, which is equipping parents to raise their, their daughters. Um, we know now more than ever the type of faith that leads to a toxic understanding of gender and sexuality. So what does it look like to develop a faith that raises girls to have a healthy self-esteem and, and voice to be heard? Mind you, realizing I'm asking that question, and you literally have like four chapters dedicated to that very question. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I just think it's so important that girls understand that their voice matters, that they are allowed to have opinions and thoughts and feelings. And boys need to understand that too. And sometimes with parenting, we can tell our kids, you know, you're not allowed to disagree with your parents. You're not allowed to disagree with the pastor. Uh, it's a sin to ask questions or to have doubts. And we do that for both boys and girls. But for girls, there's an added element where we we teach them that they're supposed to have deference to males. Um, we see this a lot in our literature to teen girls, how, you know, one a, a book like Lies Young Women Believe tells girls one day you're going to be married and he's going to have to be the leader. So you should practice now letting boys lead. You should practice now submitting to the boys around you. Um, for young women only tells teen girls that boys, all boys, not just the boy you're dating, but all boys need unconditional respect from you, which wouldn't be bad if they meant you just need to be polite and treat them well. But it, she's talking about having deference so if you know more than a boy about something, you have to pretend that you don't, or you have to show that you don't so that he can feel puffed up. Like it's, it's very, very awful. And we did this to girls. Um, just to give you, I, I think this is funny. I mean, maybe I have to think it's funny because if I actually think about it, I would cry. But one of the things that we measured was the belief that girls talk too much. Um, that is a traditional way of measuring in something called internalized misogyny when girls actually believe themselves that girls aren't worth as much as boys. Um, and so we measured, hey, did you think the girls talk too much when you were in high school? And do you think that now? And when girls believe the girls talk too much in high school, it lowers their self-esteem, it lowers their future, future marital satisfaction. And it even this, I think this one's weird. It actually leads um, to a greater likelihood that she will do way more than her fair share of the housework when she's married. So if they're both working outside the home, she's way more likely to do all the housework. If as a teenager, she believed the girls talked too much. Because when you think that what you're saying is my voice isn't as important. My thoughts aren't as important as boys. I take up too much space. And if she thinks that she's more likely to marry someone who agrees with her. And that whole idea, that whole idea, the, I, I just want to tell you what the research is based on, because that whole idea that girls talk too much, it's not even true. James Dobson in 1983 published a book called Love for a Lifetime, where he claimed that men speak 25,000 words a day and women speak 50,000. And Gary Smalley followed that up with like, men speak 25,000 and women speak 12,000. And it kept getting passed around the numbers kept changing but people kept saying this that that women speak twice the, the number of words a day as men do and that women need to be quiet to give men time to speak but when actual researchers looked at it there's no statistical difference men and women speak ex pretty much the same number of words in a day the only time there's a difference is when you're in a mixed group and then the problem is not that girls talk too much is that they don't speak enough because the only time that, that girls speak as much as they should proportionally to their amount in the group is when they're at least 80% female. When it's anything less than that, boys speak more than their share. So it's not that girls talk too much. It's that we, girls need our permission to speak up. You write about raising daughters that deserve to be protected. Um, I'll have to confess, when I first read the title of that chapter, it 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 was a trigger for me of all the 
uh, things that I was that tradition I was brought up in that, you know, told men they are warriors and women are princesses that need to be protected and saving. But that's not what you mean. So take us a little deeper into what you mean by raising daughters that deserve to be protected. We just need to teach our girls how to how to understand who is toxic and who is not and what systems are toxic and which ones aren't like we need to equip them to say okay this is not a safe situation for me and i need to get out of it but instead we we often teach girls that they need to be nice and they can't speak up and so she'll be with someone who's treating her really badly and she'll just let them and she won't say anything about it because she doesn't realize she's allowed to. So giving our kids, teaching our kids how to speak up, how to recognize um, when someone is treating me badly, because many of us don't know how to recognize it, is so important for parents to do, for youth groups to do. And we walk through in each chapter, we have um, exercises that you can actually do with your teen girls and preteen girls to help them learn to identify toxic people and toxic church spaces. Because one day your daughter's going to grow up and she's going to maybe move to a different city and she's going to need to find a new church. And you want her to know when, when this church isn't safe for me and when I need to be looking somewhere else. You also write about girls understanding that they have the right to exist in a female body. Um, so much of conservative Christian teaching is around modesty and when women's role and not leading men into sexual lust or giving into their sexual impulses. First, uh, why is that teaching complete BS? And, and second, <laughs> how do we teach an alternative to uh, to this male dominant idea? Yeah, so uh, modesty does not prevent assault. First of all, when, when we talk about modesty, we're often talking about, I don't want men staring at my daughter. I don't want men staring at, at girls. So we need to get them to cover up so that they won't be the subject of unwanted attention. It doesn't work. I mean, I, I remember having a guy grope me in a subway when I was wearing a winter jacket and jeans. Like, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're wearing. You can be assaulted. You can be groped. You can be looked at. You can be ogled. Um, and it's not about what she is wearing. So when we start talking about how what she is wearing can protect her, then what we're really saying is if you get assaulted at some level, it is your fault because he can't help it. Um, when you get him going, he can't help it. And let me give you the most horrifying example of that. Um, we reviewed Dana Gresh's secret keeper girl curriculum, which was really big during purity culture era. She has rebranded it to eight greats, eight great dates for moms and daughters, but a lot of it is very similar. It hasn't changed that much. And there were events that happened all across North America. I think several hundred thousand girls went to these. So this was not a small thing. This was a big deal. And in her curriculum, which was basically all about teaching preteen girls modesty, uh, she gave some rules, some fashion tips, and one of them was the raise and praise test. So she told little girls as young as eight to raise their arms above their head. And if their belly showed, that was bad because bellies are intoxicating. And then she explained what intoxicating meant. She had a conversation that moms are supposed to have with daughters where they were to talk about how when men get intoxicating, it's like they get drunk and out of control. 
And God made your body to be intoxicating to only one man, to the man that you are to marry. And so you aren't to, to let other men be intoxicated by you now. So she told eight-year-olds that their bellies made adult men get out of control. And no one said anything. Like, how horrifying is that? That's pedophilia. Um, and yet this is what we have largely done. And it just has such awful consequences of all the messages that we measured, the modesty messages had the worst long-term outcomes. And it just makes the world seem unsafe for girls. It makes, uh, it makes them feel like their body is somehow uh, dangerous and that they'll never, that they'll never just be able to relax and that men just aren't capable of treating them well. And that's a terrible message for girls to get. When you um, you wrote you wrote in the book, uh, when we rely on scare tactics to stop kids from having sex, we fail. Our girls will inevitably know friends or family members who are having extramarital sex and who are not pregnant, heartbroken, riddled with STIs, rendered infertile or dead. When our daughters realize our warnings mean nothing, they'll feel manipulated and may even abandon our ethics altogether. Um, there's so much to unpack here. Um, first, what does a non-scare tactic on sex look like? Oh, you just tell them the truth. You just say, look, you're going to have sexual feelings. You're going to want to have sex. I mean, that's, that's something that's God-given. God gave you your sexuality. But sex is something which is really intimate. And you're still a child. Your brain is not fully formed. <laughs> and so this is a really big decision to make. And it is not one that you should be making now. You need to wait for until you're an adult because God made sex to be sacred. And I would like you to wait until marriage. I think there are very good reasons to wait until marriage. When you wait, uh, you allow the emotional part of your relationship to bloom and you're more likely to see red flags because I want you to marry someone who's good for you. And if you're having sex, you can feel closer than you actually are. And sometimes you paper over problems. And I want you to be able to really know the person um, without feeling like you're closer than you really are. Uh, and you, you can just talk to them like that. It isn't that hard, but we don't need to tell kids. I mean, yes, obviously you're going to talk to them about STIs and getting pregnant and how you don't want that to happen to them. But, but you know, condoms actually work. And so many of our, of our materials to girls told girls that condoms don't work at all. That's just a lie. And when you lie to kids, it doesn't work out well. Um, so we just need to talk to them openly and honestly. You know, tell them what happened with you if you made mistakes and how you feel about that. Just just keep having these conversations. Um, and the conversations are going to change when they're 14 versus when they're 18 versus when they're 22. Um, you know, but but if you do want them to wait until they're married, tell them why. But also tell them, like, there is a difference between talking to a 15-year-old and a 22-year-old. A 22-year-old, if they decide to have sex, that really is their decision. A 15-year-old should not be having sex. We just know that research says that's a bad idea. <laughs> you're, you're below the age of consent in most places. And so that is a different conversation. So you may want your child to wait until they're married, but that conversation is going to look different depending on how old they are too. There's certain, I, I, I've got a follow-up question uh, around um, that, that quote I read, but I, I wonder as you look at your research and understanding so much has shifted in the last century around 
um, our age of sexuality in general, right? So like, I think about that my grandmother got married at the age of 14, like, which is just totally anathema in my mind and, and thinking of me getting married at 14 and would have been a horrible thing. How much of the challenges around sexuality um, revolve around the shift in which, um, you know, we now consider and think about adults as, as 18 and, and we're, people are putting off marriage till longer. And is there any correlation with uh, some of these struggles that, that teenagers and adults have to that? Or is that just kind of something I'm just throwing in here? Well, one thing we do know is that very young marriages don't tend to work well in the long run. Now, that doesn't mean they never do. I mean, everybody on our team that wrote, she deserves better and great sex rescue, we were all married by 21. So, <laughs> you know, now that's not considered very, very young, you know, 17, 18, 19 is very, very young, but so, but we all had relatively young marriages and we're doing well. So it doesn't mean that it can't work, but generally marriages, once you're 23, 24 are going to be better than marriages that are younger. Um, and part of that is just, our brain development, especially for guys where your prefrontal cortex doesn't even fully develop till you're 25 with women, it's a little earlier than that. Um, you know, part of it is the difficulty in getting good jobs when you're that age without education. And so do you want to be married during education? So yes, there, there are an added, there are added challenges in today's economy where you often do need longer <laughs> before you are in the position to get married, to have a family. Um, and it so it does mean waiting, especially because puberty, the age of puberty is also getting younger and younger. I mean, um, 150 years ago, it wasn't unusual for girls not to reach puberty until 15, 16. Um, but now it's quite normal to be 10, 11. So you are waiting longer uh, between puberty and marriage when you have sexual feelings. And that that is a level of temptation, a level of difficulty that maybe our ancestors didn't have. But at the same time, we do know that that really early marriages aren't always that successful either. So I'm, I'm hesitant to say that the answer is just to tell people to get marry, married earlier. Yeah. And, and I don't, that's not a fully formed idea of, of what I was throwing out there, except for the fact that I still can't believe my grandmother got married when at the age of 14, <laughs> you know, you think through like two like biblical times and the age of those kinds of things and totally different contexts and culture and things of that nature. Um, and, and there's so much, I, I think about my teenage years and the fact that your body is growing and developing and, um, you know, is, is ready and primed for, what our species was created for, you know, procreation and things of that nature. And yet our churches don't talk about that. Right. We, we just, we just tell people to stop and don't. And, and um, there's so much more beyond that. So kind of a, a, a second follow question to that, that quote I read earlier, which was um, how do, how does scare tactics miss the mark on equipping our daughters with the knowledge about healthy sexual satisfaction and sexual engagement? Yeah, what we did um, during purity culture, especially, is we replaced sex education with just fear tactics, with the don't do it. If you do it, all of these terrible things will happen to you. And when girls internalized those fear tactics, they did have lower sexual satisfaction long term. They had lower self-esteem um, and higher rates of sexual pain. When we looked at it across generations, my generation, I'm Gen X. We had way better sex ed than millennials did because the church largely um, came down against sex ed in the 90s. And we stopped, uh, not only did we stop teaching sex ed, we also 
in schools took a lot of it out to teach only abstinence. And what we found is that the fewer sex ed vocabulary words that girls knew at the point where they graduated high school, the less understanding of consent they had, the less understanding of date rape that they had, the worse everything is. Um, and what and and so I'm really against fear tactics, and I'm really for just giving kids information. There is no downside to giving kids information. The more they know about sex, the more girls understand about their periods and that they're not embarrassing. The more they understand consent and date rape, the less likely they are to be assaulted, the higher self-esteem they have, the less likely they are to marry an abuser, the less likely they, they are to have multiple sex partners. Like there is no downside. And so I, my plea for the church is to just give our kids information. Our teen girls, according to our survey, when they graduate high school, are more likely to know the words for male anatomy than they are for female anatomy. Like they're more likely to know scrotum than they are vulva or clitoris. Like that's terrible. <laughs> so our girls just don't even know about their bodies. Um, and just because someone knows about their body doesn't mean they're going to go out and have sex. It's actually that they're less likely to because they are going to understand stuff. And they're certainly less likely to be abused because now they have words for things. Um, so we just need to bring back real information that it isn't just based on don't do this or all these terrible things will happen to you. Let's take this uh, a little deeper here. Um, where does consent and boundaries fit into this conversation of of equipping our, our our daughters? We didn't teach about consent. When all we taught was don't do it, it seemed like you didn't need to teach about consent because nobody would be doing it anyway. And so we, I think it was 25.9% of girls said that they had a robust understanding of consent when they graduated high school, which means that three quarters did not. And when you combine that with the messages that our girls were getting. So for instance, uh, Shanti Felden in her book for young women only reported that 82% of boys felt little ability and little responsibility to stop in a makeout situation. And she quoted one of her survey takers as saying, if you want to stop it, it's safest to not even start. Now, I don't believe her stat because her question was very badly worded and the possible answers were badly worded. So the 82% isn't even relevant or accurate. But telling girls that 82% of boys have little ability to stop and or little responsibility, that is terrible. That is that is full up rape culture. Like 100% of boys have the ability to stop. But when we tell girls that boys can't stop, then if she starts kissing and he pushes her and eventually assaults her, she can feel that was my fault because I should have known better. And we talked to so many women in our focus groups who blamed themselves for decades for their own date rape because they felt that consenting to kissing was as bad as him not honoring her consent or not honoring her boundaries. As we're thinking through... Um this book, how do you imagine churches using it? 
Well, I'm hoping that moms read it with their daughters, um, just because I think a lot of moms need to minister to their 15-year-old inner self as well. Uh, and it, it's a great tool for parents, but I'm really praying that youth pastors read it. I think there needs to be a big awareness among those who volunteer with youth and who teach youth about some of the stuff that kids are hearing. Because when you look at um, the social media influencers, the Christian social media influencers that our teen girls and our teen boys are looking at, so many of them are still spreading all of these same messages about you know, how boys can't, boys can't help it. You need a good girl is modest, um, about soul ties about, you know, about how, if you have sex now, it's going to wreck everything and your marriage will never be as good as it could have been. And these are really harmful messages and they're not in line with the gospel. Um, you know, Jesus doesn't say if you mess up, nothing can ever be good again. Jesus says that his mercies are new every morning. And that's what we need to teach our girls. And we spent so long teaching our girls how to protect their virginity. We never taught them how to protect themselves. And so I, I hope that youth pastors will read the book and, and we'll start seeing what is in the water in evangelicalism, in our social media, in our resources, and start actively working against it. Like the vaccine, like you talked about earlier. So, you know, if churches are going to kind of engage this, um, you know, is there work that church leaders might need to do to prepare for these kinds of conversations, especially if they've never had it before? You know, what's the best way to kind of create a healthy uh, environment for for this kind of conversation? Um, I think it's important for any youth leader to examine their own biases too. And just their own hurts. Because a lot of people who are teaching youth right now, they grew up in the middle of this. Like they grew up in the worst of it. <laughs> and a lot of us haven't processed our own hurts. Um, and, and so I think reading the book can help you do that. I think it's important to have conversations with the parents of the youth too. Um, and just explain. I, I think youth youth leaders have a big role in helping parents change the dynamic in their homes too. So part of the spiritual formation that youth pastors especially can have is in teaching parents what's healthy and what's not. Because a lot of parents who grew up in with really toxic teaching are still passing that same stuff on. Um, and so the more we can invite parents in, I think, to have some of these broader discussions about, about consent, about modesty, um, about the fact that our girls need to have a voice and learning what boundaries are and learning how to identify toxic people. The more we can have those discussions with parents too, I think that will really change the culture of the church. Our guest is Sheila Ray Gregor. The book is She Deserves Better. If you want to stay connected with Sheila's work, check out SheilaRayGregor.com. Sheila, it's always great talking with you. Thank you for cultivating a resource to equip daughters to know that they deserve better. Thank you. It's been great being here. Hey, you're not going to want to fast forward because you want to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. 
now enrolling for fall of 2023. For more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Program scholarships and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.